Hello, and welcome back to the Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Mejias, and today we are doing a, another solo episode. I know that I promised uh, the new host, Daniel Grasso, would be joining me on the next episode, and maybe some of you um, had the unfortunate displeasure of, of, uh, of listening to our latest episode that we had published, but I did not feel like the audio recording was good enough uh, after we published. I don't know what happened with that episode or exactly why it was like that uh, in terms of the audio quality, um, audio quality, and um, must have happened with the mix down after, you know, because we're recording two separate audio tracks and putting them together, I guess something must have happened. And that was actually the third time we had recorded that episode. So I was getting kind of, I guess, tired of waiting to put out an episode and I wanted to have more control over exactly um, how the recording would go. So I've decided to opt for another solo episode instead of subjecting Daniel to um, uh, record the same episode for a fourth time. Um, I think that would get on anybody's nerves at that point. And I've decided to just, you know, fly solo on this on this one. And and uh, if I need to, then we'll keep going forward in this format. But if you guys like me speaking solo, let me know, you know, send me an email, you know, uh, send a message over Twitter. Hey, I just prefer, you know, Aaron solo. And if you actually hate it and you really just want to bring Austin back, then let me know that, too. And I can try to make those arrangements. Um, um, but uh, I am anticipating bringing Daniel on and hopefully we won't have as many technical issues when it comes to um, when it comes to recording at a distance like this, um, he's not familiar with podcast recordings, and obviously, I'm still an amateur at, at the audio editing and um, and uh, just I mean podcasting in general. Even though I've been doing it for a little while now, um, so uh, but uh, right now we'll just be doing a solo episode. So uh, hopefully, this goes well, and uh, just you know buckle into all the information. The episode will be a lot shorter because obviously it won't be in a dialogue format. So um, hopefully, it'll be just as entertaining as well as informative for you. So. Um, I'm currently in my office right now in sunny West Palm Beach, and uh, I figured I would just go over the um, the next episode, which is going to be about the uh, soul uh, and and uh, the gods, according to Epicurus, the Epicurean conception of of the human soul and of the gods. Um, so, it, what he says, it, which is no surprise to anybody, um, about both the soul and the gods, and we'll go for soul first, and then gods, obviously is that uh, they're both made out of atoms. And I, that may be annoying to say, um, but from a materialistic conception that Epicurean, that ep- the Epicurean framework lends itself to, um, everything has to be made out of atoms. Um, so it's not a surprise that both this, the human soul and, I mean, the gods um, or his conception of the gods would be made out of atoms, that they would be material things. And once again, you go back to the maxim in which there are only two things that truly exist in the universe, according to Epicurus, and that is that it is the atoms and the void. So the atoms being that of the 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 minutia of matter, the very minimum of matter can be, and and then uh and then uh the void in which the atoms move through. Obviously, not everything could be made of void because then that means nothing really exists in a material sense, which we know to be empirically untrue, um, according to Epicurus, and that. Uh, um, not everything could be atoms because then nothing can move. There would be no motion. So to get into his conception of the soul specifically, it's quite interesting. Um, so because you would think, okay, well, the soul is this kind of like incorporeal entity. We think of a almost a gaseous substance. It's light. It, it, uh, it, you know, it, it's not really, we don't think of atoms really when we think of soul or, you know, when we just use that word, we talk about essences, um, specifically immaterial essences. But for Epicurus, um, that's not the case at all. 
so what he what he's trying to get after really um, is is because he wants to say that the soul was made of atoms to just demonstrate the mortality of the human being um, to say that uh, when you die, your soul perishes upon death, the atoms scatter and that there is no afterlife. And that I think this is a very important uh, thing to understand when we're talking about the Epicurean framework um, for his ethics. And this is, you know, you may be asking Aaron, why you keep harping on about the atoms? And I'm like, well, because when eventually when we get into his ethical uh, system and, and talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, ethical hedonism, then, you know, it, it's important to understand that. And especially when we're talking about even about popular religion and his conception of the gods, it's important to understand that he's really going to hammer home this idea that your soul perishes upon death. There is no afterlife. It is just atoms. It is it is this it is just as atoms as as your skin is made out of atoms as the leaves or the rocks or other animals. They're all atoms. And so the soul, there's nothing special about it. It, it will just dissipate upon death. But we'll get to that point. So. What Epicurus says, and um, more specifically, what Lucretius has to say about the atoms, because it's Lucretius. Once again, Lucretius is a is a Epicurean philosopher who's writing uh, uh, during the time of of the Roman Republic. He writes uh, many, many, many years later, um, and he wrote um, on the, this massive poem um, on the nature of the universe. And it's a very important book in understanding what Epicurean thought is. And uh, he he does a you know, it's a very beautiful poem. It's kind of weird to read, but it's a very long poem that kind of gives us very deep insights of, of Epicurean philosophy and really places Epicurus on a pedestal um, when it comes to when it comes to thinkers. And, he, you know, he compares him basically to the Promethean. He's like the Promethean man where he kind of brings the the primordial fire of truth and knowledge down to the lower masses and, and has us uh, understand that the gods are not something no longer to be feared. Um but anyway, I'm getting besides myself. So in terms of the atoms and the soul, he says that that they're very fine atoms. And he, he says that they're fine and that they're small and that they're diffused throughout your limbs. Um, and so and, and when he talks about it, when Lucretius talks about it, he kind of says mind and spirit um, and he interchanges the words. He's like, your spirit is diffused. You know, uh, the spirit atoms, I guess, more specifically, or your mind atoms are are, are one nature and they're, it's diffused along the body. And and it's and this is evident because your your soul atoms, I guess, obey the will of the intellect. The mind is not a separate entity from the body and is linked with the spirit. And I'll, so I'll try to make sense of that because I, I figured that was probably really confusing. Like, what are you saying? What I'm what I'm trying to get at is that the mind and the spirit being of one nature and fixed is to say that he's he's saying that you're when you have reactions to things, a physiological reactions, like he compares it to like a javelin hitting a person. It's like, wow, that's it was painful. You know, you recoil to the effect of the javelin um, when uh, when uh, when something is cold or hot to the touch, you have a physiological reaction to that. He says that's the soul atoms. Because you have to remember that if everything is based in, in empirical evidence, if you are nothing, if all of knowledge, all of your epistemology is nothing but rooted in the sensory experiences, then this means that the mind, the mind, what we understand that to be mind or the intellect, well, not the intellect, but the mind specifically is that which gathers sensory data. Now, the intellect is what can interpret the sensory data. And he doesn't really give an explanation as to what the intellect consists of, but the mind and the intellect is that which 
collects sensory data and is able to interpret it. Now, of course, sensory data is always true, but it is our false belief or perception of the sensory data that leads to untruth, as in a, stated in previous episodes. So how do the soul atoms play into that? So he says the spirit or the soul atoms that are diffused throughout the body are synonymous with the mind. And so therefore, or your mind atoms more specifically, I know, very fun, diffused throughout the body allow us to collect the sensory data. And so therefore the atoms themselves have to be very small, fine, round like water. And so they're not tr they're not hindered. He's very practical in the way that he conceives of atoms. Of course, he didn't have the microscopic tools in the way that we do now to understand what atoms really are. So he's imagining that very small, fine, diffused atoms that are able to travel along through the body, you know, getting past all the other atoms of your body. And so they're able to be at regular intervals, intervals throughout yourself and able to get all the sensory experiences. And so, however, he imagines that because let's say your your ability to to feel um, something like we would say, like your hands are probably more sensitive than your knee. OK, as an example, um, he would say that, therefore, there are more spirit or soul atoms that are diffused to the hands to collect that sensory experience than, say, your knee. Now, your knee can still feel things, obviously, but it's the hand that has the more sensory experience of the touch and so on and so forth. Smell, taste, sight, hearing, we would say those are a particular collection and bundle of those soul atoms diffused. And so throughout the body through regular intervals, but however, gathered in certain extremities. And so when I think about the soul and the soul atoms, as he talks about it, it sounds an awful lot. And this is just a personal reflection of mine. Of course, he doesn't say this, but it sounds an awful lot like your nervous system. And you just think about it for a second and you know we think about if you just close your eyes for a second don't do that while you're driving but if you just close your eyes for a second and you think about the nerves and that, that diagram you know like when you're ever you're in middle school or high school anatomy and physiology right and they would have the the giant board that would you know they could flip through the pages that showed you the skeletal system or the musculature um, and then there was always a page for the nervous system and how the nerves are just diffused and the synapses and Again, I'm not a doctor, but, you know, all the nerves are being diffused throughout the body and those nerve endings being diffused throughout the body and at regular intervals. And then obviously certain bundles and collections of nerves in certain places to in order to interpret that sensory data in those specific points, certain body, certain body parts are much more sensitive than others in certain regards. So therefore, it sounds as if what he's really describing your intellect being that of the sensory experience, therefore the nervous system would be something more akin to how we would conceive of an Epicurean soul. And I think that's a really good comparison to kind of understand where he, where his head's at. Of course, he wouldn't have understood nerves, so he imagines them to be atoms. And that because our, the root of our knowledge is only in the sensory experiences, the mind or the soul being synonymous with each other is diffused throughout the body in the form of very fine atoms that collect the sensory data and then interpret it. Now, of course, we can ask tons of questions like, how is it possible that an atom is able to interpret the sensory data? Um, or we can ask, 
well, do we mean to say that the intellect and the mind are the same thing? Or like, does the mind obey the intellect? What, what would consist of the intellect then? Unfortunately, he doesn't say. Um, we can say that there's an inconsistency here. There's a lack of explanation. Yes. But we can also say that and understand that Epicurus, a lot of his works are still missing. And so maybe he does enter into it in a different treatise. But unfortunately, a lot of the works that we have are very limited. And Lucretius doesn't really bother to to even lend his own kind of insights into the topic. So unfortunately, I'm left with just describing the soul to you in a very kind of superficial sense. Um, however, beyond that, he does kind of talk a little bit more about the spirit or the soul or the mind. And obviously these terms, I keep interchanging them to kind of, you know, explain the idea that this is how he understands these terms. Um, he talks about how we can even understand the soul as being composed of different material and those materials being air, heat, wind, and an unknown substance. Now you may be asking like, well, why couldn't he just have soul atoms? And, and the reason why he says it this way is to kind of give an explanation as to why we see a different kind of behavior in different organisms. Um, and this is because of the soul atom. It, the soul atoms are not only there to collect sensory data, even though that's obviously a big part of it, they also move us. Because in the conception of, of soul for the Greeks, the soul just meant spark of life for the Greeks. It just meant like the soul was not some sort of like a uh, strange incorporeal entity that contained the essence of who you are in a sort of um, Cartesian sense, uh, a dualist sense, where it's like you are a husk as a person and then you have the soul that's entered into you. Now, Plato kind of gets into that idea, but... I digress. The soul is really meant to be, you know, hey, you're alive as a human being, but what causes you to live? Now we can say the heart is beating, right? You know, blood is pumping, you're thinking, but what caused that initial spark? The Greeks were always obsessed with this idea of, of trying to get down to the root cause of things, the final ends of things. And so the soul was this idea of, and of course, different conceptions of the soul, but the soul was always this idea of that initial spark of life, that which that which caused you to be. And so this is the same case here. The soul is that is that spark of life. It, 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 the soul atoms are what animate us, both in the sensory experience, but also causes us to move. And we're able to move about and live as an organic being. The soul atoms do that for us. Now, of course, we can't, we can only scratch the surface of this because there's not much else to say deeper down, according to Epicurus, but Suffice it to say that he, he basically says these specific atoms, these soul or spirit atoms are what give us that spark of life. Um, and so, however, that spark of life, as it were, is composed of these four elements, air, heat, wind, and an unknown substance. Now, why is that? It is because it is giving an explanation as to other organisms, humans, deers, wolves, lions, you know, all the number of, of, of organic life are composed of these different kinds of soul atoms of a different composite of a different composition. So, so as to say that, um, air, you know, or how about this? How about heat? So heat, a greater degree of heat in your soul atoms causes one to be more aggressive and violent. Air would be something like peace. And then your wind would be flight and caution. So a deer, very flighty creature, right? Will run immediately at the sign of any sort of danger. 
Epicurus would see that and say, well, why does the deer behave that way? There must be an empirical explanation as to why the deer behaves that way. It is because the deer is filled with more, well, wind. Now, this may sound a little bit silly to our own conception of what like modern science tells us, but again, doing the best that you can, he says, you know, he's onto something here. He's saying, well, the soul atoms, they're the way, the thing that animates the deer is obviously made up of a different composition. And so I imagine wind makes you more cautious and, and flighty. And so therefore it is made of wind. The lion or a wolf, much more aggressive filled. It has a, has a, has a streak of rage to it. You have to be cautious around these, these predators. They're made of more heat fire. And then air is peace. So he talks about sheep. Like you can talk about sheep in a flock and, and they're very docile, peaceful cre- creatures, herd creatures, cattle as well. They would be constituted of more air. Now, of course, you have all of these elements present. However, obviously there are more of one than the other. Now, the unknown substance is, I guess, a way of him explaining away all those earlier questions that I was positing of well, how do we understand the intellect? You know, how are how are they able to collect uh, sensory data, understand it? Um, you know, even human beings are able to reason, um, and we kind of conceive of ourselves as individuals. I don't. I'm not entirely sure if if uh, if a, a dog or a deer or a lion is able to exude what we call consciousness. And so, I think that the unknown substance is kind of this way of biting the bullet, as it were. The unknown substance of Epicurus would be something that kind of explains away these uh, these uh, strange happenings, I guess. Uh, the uh, uh, the phenomenon of of the spirit, right? Uh, the unknown substance is what would allow that for the Epicurean philosophy. Obviously, very dissatisfactory for us on our own modern ends, and we wish there was so much more to be explored there. Uh, well, at least I do. I don't know about you, but I, I, I would like to be able to understand exactly what he meant by this unknown substance. But once again, just absolutely limited in the works that we have available. And, and unfortunately, Lucretius is too busy, um, uh, you know, explaining other things in the poem. I, I believe at this point he ends up uh, saying something along the lines of, uh, uh, you know, he kind of gets onto the unknown substance, immediately moves on and then says, hey, by the way, like when you die, your soul does not turn into worms <laughs> when when it disperses, um, which is just you're like, can you talk more about the unknown substance? And he says, no. Um, so so as I was saying that to kind of review the soul and the spirit are are the basis of your mind, right? The mind um, as he says, is 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 housed in the chest. So I'm guessing he's imagining the heart. That's the mind, and it's synonymous with your spirit. And your spirit is made out of atoms. And the atoms are diffused at intervals throughout the body. They're small, fine, and round to get through. And they are able to and made of different compositions of an unknown substance, air, heat, and wind. And that they are able to coll- they both animate you and collect the sensory data. So. And I think that that has a very, I don't know, there's an apt comparison there with, with the nervous system. And, 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 uh, and uh, he goes on to actually attribute, you know, like I said, movement, feelings, sensations, and all of experience, you know, to the spirit. And the reason why the spirit is synonymous with the mind is because of sensory data being the way in which we, which is the basis of your intellect. And so I think that's a pretty good review of the Epicurean soul. And how it's really rooted in a material nature, just as anything else is is rooted in a material nature for 
Epicurus, and this is so fundamentally important for him. And it's like, well, you know, you keep talking and talking about atoms, but it really, really does set up this framework of the ethics. And this is why. Because if the soul is made out of atoms, as I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, if the soul is made out of atoms, it will disperse upon death. Now, why is that important? It's important because there's no afterlife. Epicurus wants to establish this kind of worldview or this philosophy and where you no longer fear death, where he says, you know, you didn't exist before and then you're existing for a very short amount of time and then you won't exist after. It's okay. Like you didn't feel like you didn't feel, you didn't know what it was like to like not exist. You weren't there. And so why are you afraid of not existing again? Like there's nothing much to cling on to here. And then more importantly is that there's no gods or afterlife to be punished with. There's nothing that you have to existentially fear. You know, this dread of, am I going to hell? Am I going to heaven? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? And uh, what happens to the soul upon death? Does the soul exist? And he's like, it doesn't, like the soul exists, sure, but it's just atoms that disperse upon death. You no longer have to fear from the large religious groups who want to explain to you that, uh, you know, uh, do as we say, or else your soul will be punished in eternal damnation. And he dispels of those myths, or what he calls myths. And he says that, no, the soul is atoms, and you're going to die, <laughs> and it'll go away. And the, the mortality of the soul is so important, because he's, not only is he saying that, you know, you know, we can do away with the notions of popular religion, and we no longer have to fear the result of death in our own lives and reduce that anxiety, it also turns the attention back on the importance of the here and now for him. The fundamental importance of how we behave, what is our ethical framework here, and how it's really going to set up um, the idea that you know, the, pleasure pain, pain, the pleasure pain principle um, and that as being the, the fundamental basis for his ethics and the maximization of, of pleasure and the reduction of pain. If everything is atoms. Now we can like, we will get into that. It was whether that means debauchery or not, but it, it, you know, in, in those later episodes, but it actually ends up leading as a spoiler. It leads into a very uh, ascetic uh, uh, kind of lifestyle in which you don't want to, uh, you know, increase your pleasures to a point in which, you know, you're unable to handle, um, you know, all the, <laughs> all the many sensory experiences that you can have in life. And in fact, it really means limiting them, but that's obviously uh, further down the road. So uh, the biggest, the biggest concern when he's talking about the soul though, is to drive away any unfounded fears that we have about appeasing gods or, you know, the natural order. And like I said, it's about turning and focusing ourselves inward, you know, living a life of, of gratitude and of pleasure in the here and now being thankful for our existence here. And then, and then when we die, we die. And he's and and he's like kind of in the way that the Stoics are like, you're a visitor. And then when your time is up, your time is up and you, you know, you, you bow out and then you leave. Um, but obviously not in a material sense. And so Epicurus kind of follows in that same line where he's like, well, you know, you weren't alive before and you won't be alive after and you'll feel nothing. And, death is is painless and you'll be okay um and there's nothing to fear um it's just you're just going away 
Now, of course, now there may be some of you who are like, well, I do fear that, you know, I do fear this idea that I will become nothing, that everything is dispersed and that there's really nothing on the end of it. Epicurus would push against that. He would push against that. He would, you know, he would, he would continue to rely on the idea that, you know, well, you didn't exist before and you didn't feel anything. So it's okay if you don't feel anything afterwards. You know, this idea of, of clinging to life, of, of, of hoping that there is an eternity. And, you know, he would just rather be done with all of it. And he's like, no, you're just, you're here for your time and it's okay. You, like, enjoy the here and now, obviously. But uh, uh, there's nothing really here to cling to. And so that kind of sets up, I think, a good idea of the soul. Um, you know, there was a bit of a summary in there. And and uh, and uh, uh, it's interesting for me because there's nobody, obviously, for me to talk back and forth with. But I'll make do. So in terms of the gods, moving on from the soul, the gods, unsurprisingly, again, are also made out of atoms. Wow, what a shock. And because that the gods are made out of atoms, it's, it once again does the same thing that he's doing with the soul. The gods are not really real. Now, you may be wondering, well, you just said that the gods are made out of atoms, so they are real. But that means that they're corporeal entities, not ethereal, immaterial entities or entity, singular, that are able to meddle in your daily life or care about your actions. The gods are um, these, I guess, material beings, since they are made out of atoms, that, in, according to Epicurus, they live in total bliss. They don't move. They are infinite um, in the sense that they are eternal. And they are, you know, forever stationary and, and living in, in total contemplation and reflection and ease. Because they are, uh, for him, the kind of ideals, or if I could use the term form, of what the Epicurean ethic is supposed to look like. A completely fulfilled, completely uh, in recline, and not at all concerning themselves with anything else. Just absolutely, completely fulfilled. There's no reason for them to intervene um, into into our daily lives and meddle into our affairs, much like the, you know, the stories that we get of the Greek and Roman gods and, and their constant pestering and, and involvement in mortal affairs. He is imagining gods that are absolutely unconcerned. Now we may, you can, we can wonder like, is he, is he only instituting the gods to kind of, you know, borrow that language to have something there to kind of appease people. Um, and, but really he doesn't believe in the gods. Now, you can there could be some conjecture there and we can we can certainly somebody can make the case however for epicurus he would say that the gods as we conceive of them now um you know whether that at least in their time in the popular religion of the household gods in a, in a very polytheistic worldview um the the pagan pantheon is is absolutely not true he doesn't say don't pray to the gods like don't be martyred for your faith he's not you know he's not advocating an entirely new religion and he's not you know, ardently against, um, you know, uh, the the practice of worship and and uh, and a ceremony that was present in when he was writing. Um, he allows his followers to actually continue to participate, but he he says, you know, just don't believe. You know, don't get yourself in trouble on on my behalf, but just don't believe. 
just know that the gods aren't real. There's nothing in the afterlife to punish you. They're not involved in your affairs. And, and that, uh, however, just don't make any trouble for yourself. You know, continue to show up in the temple, make your sacrifices and get on with your day. Now, why is it important that he even has the gods then? Why can't he just say there are none? No, no, you know, not even atomic gods, just nothing is involved. Well, interestingly enough, the reason why is because of dreams. Now, Epicurus has this idea that because we can dream of gods and that we can dream of, of these ideal beings, therefore they must be real. Even dreams are, in essence, a sensory experience. Once again, only atoms and void. So everything that you experience must come from atoms, more specifically the idola that is emitted off of the material entities that provide us these the thin films of atoms, if you remember, the idola, the thin films that emit off of objects and impinge upon our sensory experiences and allow us to experience sensory data. Those must be coming off of somewhere if we are having dreams about them. And so if we have dreams about the gods, if we have dreams about the ideals, if we know them to be true through our dreams, then therefore there must be a material corporeal entity out there somewhere that is emitting idola that is reaching us. Now, this is really strange to say, and it, and exactly how can he really make the conjecture of exactly what the gods are? And of course, he's just using the Epicurean ideal to explain exactly like who the gods are, uh, you know, what they would be composed of and how they would act. Um, and so, fine. But, you know, I, I like to think of the fact that Epicurus has also posited that there are you know, infinite amount of different worlds out there with different kinds of life that may exist. You know, he he conjectures that, you know, if the inner universe is infinite and atoms are ceaselessly colliding with each other, making new creations by pure random chance, then, you know, there's no reason why there wouldn't be a different planet with different organisms living on it, alien life. Um, so why couldn't the gods be, in a way, alien life? This idea, the dreams that we have, you know, that there are you know, beings out there, uh, entities, planets, or whatever it may be that are also emitting idola and they're traveling across great distances to impinge themselves on our senses as we sleep. It's, it's a very interesting thought experiment. And I don't know exactly how, you know, he doesn't exactly say neither Lucretius nor Epicurus, and he doesn't spend a lot of time on it, unfortunately. And and, uh, and uh, you know, we don't get this idea of, of how he's conceiving of, of exactly how fast the atoms travel, what great distances they're going to abound and how they would reach us. But this is all to say that, again, if we're having a sensory experience, then therefore it must be true. And so if we have a sensory experience about the gods, there is an entity, beings out there that would constitute gods, but they would be made out of atoms and then they would be emitting idola. And for some reason, these gods are also like are infinite. We are not and our soul atoms are not, but they are. Um, and so I think it's more more once again to you know take popular religion down a peg to get rid of our fears to reorient our lives on on the here and now on the sensory experiences is what's important but also to kind of present an ideal for us to strive to um the gods are not supposed to be some sort of i think big um philosophical statement um but instead just to as a kind of example for epicurus to kind of say well look look at look at these these beings that are in they're in absolute bliss. They're not worrying themselves with day-to-day -day operations. They're completely in recline. They they do not seek more pleasure than they absolutely need, and they avoid pain whenever possible. And so, you know, therefore, are are completely fulfilled. 
um, and never, never, um, you know, pursuing uh, even more and more pleasures, more and more particular pleasures that causes them anxiety and worry and all these other woes. And, you know, nor are they denying themselves fulfillment and satisfaction. Um, They're just in complete bliss. And so he's doing two things at once, obviously. He's establishing the ethical framework that we're going to discuss in later episodes, but also at the same time, he's he's getting rid of, once again, that existential fear of death and of the punishment from the gods. So I think that pretty much wraps it up. Um, I'm kind of surprised, you know, a little over 30 minutes in and, and already done with the topic, but there's not terribly too much to say in terms of a general overview of exactly what the Epicurean conception of soul and the gods are. And uh, unfortunately, I, you know, nobody to bounce off these questions you know, with anybody um, and, and get a deeper dive into the topic. But hopefully this will suffice as a bridge episode as we move from um, continuously talking about atoms and how they work and exactly what they are and taking those ideas and then now putting them into this idea of the soul, uh, of the human soul or, or animal souls, um, as Epicurus would say. And this idea of the gods and how important this is in terms of laying a foundation for when we get into those ethical conversations. And as you've seen in this episode, it was kind of hard not to talk about the soul and the gods without talking about that ethical framework. So we're going to get into all of that. And I think this is going to be an important bridge as we kind of, you know, lay that foundation to get into those later episodes, which is really what Epicurus is going to want to talk about anyway. Epicurus does, you know, he talks a great deal about atoms. He talks about the soul, the gods. He talks about um, sensory experiences, epistemology, the nature of the Adams, the nature of Idola, all these different things. And it, it serves as good and interesting material, especially from, you know, early atomic uh, theory, stuff from antiquity and, uh, you know, a whole new branch of philosophy outside of Platonism or Aristotelianism, Neoplatonism and Stoicism that is going on in the Mediterranean basin or cynicism even. This is completely different, and it's really interesting. However, what Epicurus is really after is to establish an entirely new ethical framework. What he's after is really to just encourage people to change the way that they live, to see the world in new eyes beyond, um, you know, the very overly complicated and 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 very uh, systematic Platonists and Neoplatonists and Aristotelians. He, his school of thought, his school of philosophy in the Garden was very much focused on daily life, on the pleasures of life, on on avoiding pain. And it didn't, it wasn't as, uh, you know, even though he was a prolific writer and he was very avid in what he taught, it wasn't of the same, it doesn't seem to be, at least from all indications from Epicurus and Lucretius and Diogenes Laertius, that we don't get this idea that he's establishing, a, you know, a whole treatise on physics and as Aristotle does, you know, um, or, or, you know, talking about cosmology and, and, uh, and uh, as, as Plato does, he is more of very much into ethics and how we should live. And this is where everything is working up into. So we may come away a little dissatisfied um, with some of the discussions when we talk about the atoms and it's like, wow, well, does really, how does that work? How does the soul work? How does it, and there's not really much of an answer, but that's because both the lack of primary sources on, on the thinker himself, but more importantly, because he's he's got a goal that he's trying to get to, and and I think he succeeds in that. I really do. I think that he is he's driving towards that point, and you know he's got a lot of interesting things to say. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, once again, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Academy underscore Podcast. You can also feel free to email me at theacademypodcast at outlook dot com. 
Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this solo episode format. I hope it wasn't terribly boring for all of you. Um, it is is a different kind of format for me. It's it's much easier to have somebody that you're kind of working off of and and being able to drive that conversation forward. Um, but I hope that the the lesson was good that you were able to follow and it went well. I hope. <laughs> well, and this is the importance of this feedback of, you know, the email and, and, uh, and of social media so that I can kind of understand where you guys are, where your head's at and see if you're enjoying the content. But other than that, um, once again, uh, thank you so much for listening into this episode. Um, I hope to, um, um, have you guys all listen in, um, as we wrap up the series, because after this, we're going to go into the ethics finally, and then finish off Epicurus once and for all, and then move on to a brand new series after that. So hopefully maybe two episodes on the ethics, and then we'll be out of here. And other than that, have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Bye.